Take me back to that year. What was it like for you in the months before you came out making that big decision? It was scary. Um, I had thought about my gender identity every single waking hour of every single day up until that point. The first time I interviewed Sarah McBride, it was 2012. I was writing for a local blog here in Washington, D.C. She was the student body president at American University, and she had just done something pretty groundbreaking. I wasn't quite sure how my campus would respond to an out transgender student body president. Um, Certainly, I didn't even know how they'd necessarily respond to an out transgender student. Sarah had always had an interest in politics. She'd always wanted to run for office. It's why she worked on campaigns back home in Delaware and got involved with student government when she got to AU. But there was a part of her, a big part of her, that thought when she came out as trans, she'd be kissing those dreams goodbye. I had to say there are just some things more important, that there might be other ways that I can contribute, that I can feel proud of the life that I've lived. None of those will be possible if I don't take this step toward authenticity and, and, and wholeness but I, 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 in many ways, had to give up on those dreams. I had to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let a, a career in government get in the way of, of, of alleviating a nearly constant pain and completeness. So Sarah came out in an essay in the school newspaper. And the reaction she got wasn't exactly what she expected. What was incredible uh, from the first moment my coming out note posted, every single message that came in was a message of love and support. One of the things I always said as student body president was that our college campuses should look like the country we want to build in 10 or 15 years. And on that night at American University in 2012, well before sort of trans identities and trans rights burst into the national conversation, our campus was trying to send a small but important message to the broader country, which is that while we may just be learning about transgender people and their identities, this is how you respond with love with acceptance, and with support. After graduation, Sarah jumped right into national politics. She worked in the Obama White House. She became the national press secretary for the Human Rights Campaign. And she spoke at the Democratic National Convention in 2016. LGBTQ people are still targeted by hate that lives in both laws and in hearts. Many still struggle just to get by. But I believe that tomorrow can be different. Tomorrow, we can be respected and protected. Now, Sarah's running for office, a state Senate seat in her home district in Delaware. In her coming out essay seven years ago, she wrote, I know now that my dreams and my identity are only mutually exclusive if I don't try. So she's trying. As I see what's going on in in our country writ large, I I feel that there's a strong need for more people to step up to run for office. I believe that that I have what it takes to take on some of the hard fights, to bring about change that people might think is impossible, to see every single one of my constituents, to see and hear every single one of us, to, to, to fight for a government where nobody gets left behind and where everyone is seen and heard. And I think that that's what we need more of in our in our politics right now. And, and I believe that that I'm able to help hopefully contribute to that change. Today on What Next, I talked to Sarah McBride about how she deals with bullies, how the Democratic Party has evolved on trans issues and what it's like to be the first trans person to have a seat at so many different tables. 
I'm Christina Cotarucci, filling in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Delaware is one of just a handful of states that's never elected an openly LGBTQ person to the state legislature. One woman came out as gay during her state Senate term in 2013. That's it. Sarah thinks that's a fluke, that Delaware is as affirming to queer and trans people as any state can be. But in this campaign she's running, she wants to make one thing very clear. I'm not running to be a transgender state senator. I'm running to be a state senator who cares about health care and expanding access to paid family and medical leave and reforming our criminal justice system, that I'm not running to be an LGBTQ state senator. I'm running to be a, a state senator who's been a caregiver, who's been, who was born and raised in this community and in this district. Um, so, so I think what's clear is that when trans candidates run and talk about all of the issues that their constituents care about, they can win. Are you thinking of any specific examples? Who are your trans political role models? Well, you know, I'm really lucky to be able to call Danica Rome a friend. Um, Danica Rome is incredible. Danica Rome was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates in 2017 in a pretty poetic victory. She's a trans woman who ousted a longtime legislator who had called himself Virginia's chief homophobe and who refused to debate her or even call her by her correct pronouns. Her election was, I think, for so many people, myself included, incredibly um, inspiring and empowering. Uh, and, and, and she definitely serves as, as a, as a role model and an inspiration for me and so many other people. And I think, again, what, what she has demonstrated is that when trans candidates run hard, work hard and talk about the hard issues that people are facing in their everyday lives, in her case, uh, uh, you know, she focused in on transportation and, and fixing a, a, a critical route through her district that wasn't getting, um, repaired and, and, and improved, in my case, it's it's talking about the importance of expanding access to affordable health care, making sure more Delaware families are able to secure paid family and medical leave. Even though I've been working for a few years in LGBTQ equality, doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not passionate about all of the issues or have interacted with all of the issues. Um, the most formative experience in, in my life is not my identity. It was being a caregiver to my late spouse. And one of the most profound changes I've seen due to, to people like Danica, is that today I get to meet so many young LGBTQ people who are doing what once seemed so impossible to me growing up. They are both living their truth and dreaming big dreams all at the same time. What sorts of tips has she given you as you start your campaign? Knock on doors. Knock on doors. This campaign will be about, as I think most campaigns are about, particularly at this level, meeting as many voters as many times as possible. Um, and, and that really is about knocking on doors, which I've already started more than a year from the election. From the, your first step into politics, you, it's just a litany of firsts. I mean, you were, I think, the first openly trans woman to serve in the White House, uh, the first openly trans person to speak at a major party convention. 
Do you feel like a pioneer? Is it very clear to you when you're in those spaces that you are the first? Well, I don't know that I, I, I feel like a first, um, but I do feel a, a sense of responsibility. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always felt very strongly about in my advocacy, particularly through telling my story in my advocacy, is that it's not just enough for people to have empathy for me. Um, that's, you know, frankly, not too difficult. I'm, I'm, you know, here in Delaware, a neighbor. I'm born and raised here. I'm, I'm white, grew up in an economically um, fortunate household with all of the different educational backgrounds and opportunities that, that come with that. Um, it, it's not too difficult for for people to have empathy for me. My goal is to make sure that in building empathy for myself, that I'm making sure that we're helping to build empathy for others. Real empathy has to come into play, not just for the folks who are the same as us in every single way, but one or two, but folks who are different than us in every single way, but one, that our shared humanity. And that is empathy that's sometimes hard, but that's empathy at its truest form. I think a lot of people would assume that the White House in a Democratic administration would be dreamy. I mean, you know, these are people who are thinking about and talking about LGBTQ rights for a living. But I wonder, especially since you were the first trans woman there, and this was some years ago, did you have a lot of teaching moments? It was clear it's a White House filled with people who support LGBTQ equality, people who are, are passionate about doing good and being good. But, it, but you know, to some degree, for the first few years, it, it felt like trans issues in particular were on the back burner, were the progress that we saw was sort of whispered progress. And so I, I felt a, a desire to both educate folks, and I remember meeting with everyone from senior staff to intern colleagues to talk to them about transgender people and identities, to utilize that opportunity uh, to educate them a little bit more. But I think almost more than anything, what I saw in that in that space was that just being at the table, just walking the halls, just having coffee, regardless of whether you're talking about the specific issues, when you're sitting across a person who's impacted by these issues, you know, in the in the conference room, or when you're walking with them in the hallway, their issues are no longer abstract. And it becomes much more difficult to deprioritize the issues that impact a particular community, which is why it's so important, which is why people say, you know, when you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. It's not just about the opportunity to educate. It's just literally the opportunity to be present and to remind people that behind these conversations, behind these issues are real people. To my mind, that takes an incredible amount of strength, almost like you are the... Um in some cases, maybe like the the barrier that a lot of shit gets projected onto um, where, you know, somebody who's not in a position of such high visibility, you know, a trans person who's not in a position of high visibility might not be asked to sort of speak for the community or be asked uncomfortable questions. Is that ever exhausting for you? Do you feel like you need to build up strength to to serve that role? Sure, it can be exhausting. Um, sure, it can be, uh, frankly, even annoying at times to, to get asked questions that, you know, even well-intentioned versions can, can dehumanize or diminish. But at the end of the day, to think about what people have to go through every single day who don't have the opportunities, who don't have the support structures, who don't have all of the different privileges that I've been able to have in my life, and, and if I, in some small way, can help 
shoulder some of that burden of public education a little bit more, if I can in some way help to answer questions or educate people so that someone else who's just trying to struggle and survive, you know, if I can help take that off their shoulders, then I think that, 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 that I have a responsibility personally to do that. To me, it doesn't seem like a coincidence that the transpolitical success stories we've seen so far have been at the state and local level. Do you think it's because at the national level, trans rights have been this terrible conservative rallying point? I think it's actually more about two things. First is just the practical reality that trans people are just getting our start in elected politics. And inevitably, as a community just gets its start, it's going to start locally and and work its way up. Now, as more transgender candidates get elected to city council and school boards and state legislatures, you'll see, you know, more and more transgender candidates get elected to higher political office uh, in the future. So I think that's one part of it. The second dynamic that, that probably makes these races more hospitable to trans candidates, at least at this point in time, compared to to higher offices, is that voters get to meet the trans candidate. And when you meet the trans person, you realize that they're a person. You realize that they have a lot to bring to the table and, and, you know, the headlines and the, and the caricatures and the, the absence of an understanding of who transgender people are dissipates because you as a voter are getting to know a trans person and they just also happen to be a candidate for public office. And certainly, you know, if you're a Democrat running in a Democratic primary, it's not inconceivable that you're going to meet every single Democratic voter that votes in the Democratic primary in a district that size. And I think similarly, it's the reason why a small state like Delaware is hospitable and supportive of, of, of embracing the trans community in general, because as a state of neighbors, we get to know each other really well compared to a, a bigger state where you might just be seeing this stuff on the news. Um, you know, in, in a smaller state, we get to know one another in a really personal way. And when that happens, it dissipates a lot of the misconceptions and prejudices that people have. So have you seen any changes in the Democratic Party over the course of your career in terms of support for trans rights? You know, I think one of the things that we've benefited from as a Democratic Party is a very clear and recent evolution on marriage equality. Um, I think a lot of Democratic voters remember very clearly having been wrong on marriage. And they took pride in the progress that we, we've made as a country on marriage equality. The recent nature of that evolution and the recent nature of the change on that issue and, and the connection that people have in their minds between that issue and trans rights, given that it's all part of the LGBTQ umbrella, has, I think, helped reinforce for people, one, the arc of history on these issues, and two, very clearly, they say, you know, I remember being wrong. I was, and I was on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be on the wrong side of history again. And so they're willing to sort of move past their questions and their misconceptions and their maybe even somewhat, you know, visceral discomfort or unease with the issue. I think they're more willing to move past that on trans rights because they don't want to make the same mistake again. They want to be right from the start. Huh. I had not considered that. You know, when people ask me, is there a benefit to this movement being one movement? Is there a benefit? We, we, we've seen so much progress on marriage equality and not enough on trans rights, which I obviously agree with. I think we, we tend to gloss over the incredible power of that progress and that history on 
where people enter into the conversation on trans rights and that they're entering into the conversation from a much better place. And I saw it in Delaware. I remember I was worried when we were working on both marriage bill and trans rights bill that legislators would get exhausted after the marriage bill and just ha- not have space, not have room for the trans rights bill. And I remember one of my uh, colleagues who's an advocate, uh, president of Equality Delaware, said to me, no, they are going to be, I think she said the words, high on history after passing marriage. They are going to be feel empowered and emboldened, and they're going to want to get that sense again. They're going to feel on top of the world, and they're going to want to push forward, and they're going to want to do the second bill. And that was exactly what happened. Is there any trans rights legislation on the table right now that you wish was getting more attention? Well, you know, one of the things I've I've worked on at the Human Rights Campaign, where, where I serve as a national press secretary, is um, the Equality Act, which is legislation that would um, modernize and enhance our federal civil rights laws, um, not just for the LGBTQ community, but for women, people of color, and people of faith. Uh, that legislation passed the House of Representatives this past spring, the first time in, my, in in American history that a chamber of Congress has passed a comprehensive LGBTQ civil rights bill. Uh, that obviously uh, has gone to the Senate, where Mitch McConnell, like with other pieces of legislation, has so far put it in a drawer and forgotten about it. Yeah, the Equality Act is really interesting to me because I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to people, especially straight people, who support LGBTQ rights and protections, but have no idea that, you know, in 26 states, you can legally be fired from a job or denied housing just because you're queer or trans. Why do you think that knowledge gap exists? I think it's because people think that and rightfully, that discrimination is antithetical to our values and our laws as a nation. I don't think people understand that when we outlaw discrimination in this country, we outlaw it based on specific characteristics. It's not discrimination is illegal. It's discrimination based on religion, race, sex, et cetera, is illegal. And so, you know, people just assume discrimination is illegal, discrimination is wrong, and therefore discrimination against LGBTQ people must be illegal. Uh, and, and so one of the things we have to do and have been doing is educating people, not just about the problem of discrimination, but the problem of the fact that the law does not clearly and equally protect us from that discrimination. One of the challenges we face in, in pushing forward the legislation is that miscon- is that precise misconception because 70 to 80 percent support these protections, but also 70 to 80 percent think they already exist. Yeah. So why would you get out there marching for something that you think already is is written into law? Exactly. Exactly. I want to talk to you about one of the more difficult parts of your job, I imagine. I saw a video where a bunch of anti-trans activists from the UK sort of ambushed you. Um, They were yelling at you. And I was floored by the way you handled it, just with remarkable composure. How do you keep your cool in a moment like that? One of the the most difficult things in my career has been sort of figuring out how to deal with the hate and vitriol that, that, that comes my way. And I will be honest that there have been times where I wasn't sure that I could deal with it. I worried that I wouldn't have thick enough skin, that I didn't have thick enough skin to continue to do the work. Um, That was for the first, frankly, three to four years of my career. Uh, I had then an experience in 2016 before I spoke at the convention um, where I I took a selfie of myself in a bathroom in North Carolina that I was technically barred from being in. And that selfie went viral, uh, very quickly, uh, very virally. 
I remember the day after I took the selfie, uh, turning on the TV, and uh, sure enough, Chris Hayes had my selfie in a bathroom up on MSNBC on prime time. So it, it was it was quite an experience, um, and it was probably you know prior to the convention the most sort of exposure I, I, I had gotten up until that point in my work. And the, the hate and the vitriol and, and more than anything else, threats that came in were significant and, and almost felt like they were unending for a period of time. I'll never forget at one point having to turn my phone off because my phone just kept lighting up over and over again, notification after notification, more than anything else, three letters, KYS, KYS, kill yourself, kill yourself over and over again. And I'm, you know, 25 at the time. I, I did not think words on a screen could impact me as much as they were. Um, and, and that was the moment, I think, more than any other moment in my career where I wondered if I could do this. I spent a lot of time thinking about the hate and the vitriol and reflecting on it. I came away really realizing that all of us, all of us deal with an insecurity, with something that society tells us we should be ashamed of and that we should hide. Everyone is something that they have been told is worthy of being mocked and ridiculed. And the thing about LGBTQ people is that we have taken that fact and not only oftentimes accepted it, but in many cases accepted it and walked forward from a place of pride. And the bullies see that power. They see that individual agency in conquering our own fears and insecurities, and they're jealous of that power. And so much of their hate and vitriol, so much of their bullying comes from that jealousy, comes from the fact that they see our power and they're jealous of it. And so for me, it was a sort of perspective shifting moment where I realized that I was powerful that LGBTQ people are powerful just by being, and we carry that power with us from the safest of spaces to the scariest of places. Well, it was so great to talk to you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. That's the show. I'm Christina Cotarucci, filling in for Mary Harris. You can find me on Twitter at C underscore Cotarucci. This episode of What Next was produced by Samantha Lee. Danielle Hewitt provided production assistance. Thanks for listening.